0: Guys, look, uh, uh, if you haven't been with us, I want to catch you up to speed. These last several weeks this fall, we have been going through something called Jesus' Bible. Um, we tend to call it the Old Testament. But you know, it, it's really a misnomer because it was not old to him. For Jesus, there was nothing more living, active, and relevant than this thing that we call the Old Testament. And I think what we, we so often miss is that. Uh, it really is the same for us today as well if we take it as it wants to be taken. And what we're going to be doing these next few weeks as we continue this journey is we're going to be looking at this, uh, this absolutely central concept in the Old Testament called covenant. At some point, you um, just can't really understand why God does what he does or figure out what he's up to in this world until you come to terms with these covenants in the Bible. So what we're going to do is spend the next few weeks looking at these covenants and how they give us a window into not only the heart and mind of God, but what he is up to in this world. So um, let's start here. Maybe definition. Covenant, right? Big churchy word. We don't really use it in any context, um, except maybe um, marriage covenant might be a way that it hangs on today. Um, but what is this thing? What's a covenant? Easiest definition for you. A covenant is a contract. Period. What's a contract? Well, a contract is a, a promise, But it's more than just like, oh, I promise. You know, it's a promise where there's stakes. It's a promise where you're you're asking people to witness it. There's it's a promise where you're saying, no, I'm laying this out here. I want it to be clear. It is finished. You know what I mean? It is this kind of thing. These are the covenants of the Bible. You know, and I think that's why when it comes to marriage, we call it a marriage covenant still. Because really, what is a marriage covenant? It's just a contract, right? It's just a contract between two people that are saying, you know, we're going to enter into this relationship, and with it there are certain legal rights you now get, certain expectations that come along with it. It just feels like really clinical and forensic to put it that way, though, doesn't it? It's like, here, would you sign this contract with me? Uh, You know, it doesn't feel right because it seems to kind of siphon off the the relational side of it that I think is so central to what promises, particularly God's promises, are really all about. So that's what we're jumping into. And what we're going to start with today is the first place that the word covenant appears in the Bible. It is Genesis 6 through 9. This is the story of Noah and the flood. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk you through this today and start to unveil to you, I hope, what's going on here with God's covenants in the midst. Do me a favor, follow along with me. Chairs uh, have Bibles in the racks
1: and uh, you can pull one out. Genesis chapter 6, all right? All right, we're going to pick up at verse 11. This is what it says.
0: Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. Make it really, really big. Verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish But here it is, but I will establish my covenant with you. The first time this word appears in the Bible is right here. I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now, I really encourage you to read the story in chapter 7 and 8, how how Noah's flood carries out. But but for summary's sake and time's sake, what happens is that everything God said was going to happen, guess what, actually happens. And so what we see is that the animals, they start coming to Noah, and they start coming into the ark, and God puts Noah and the animals into the ark, and it says he seals them in and they wait, and for seven days they wait inside of this, and then... It starts to come. It talks about how the rains start opening up like a torrent from above and how the, 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 the floodwaters, the springs of the deep, open up and start geysering up and there is this, this torrential flood of water that comes from above and from below and it starts to flood the earth. And the story goes on about how for 40 days and 40 nights the rain didn't. Stop. You ever been in one of those storms where it's like two inches came in an hour? Okay, imagine 40 days, all right? And it comes, and it comes, and it comes. And the water gets so great from the rains above and, the, and then the springs below that it starts to top mountains. And before you know it, it says everything on the earth is covered. The highest mountains are covered, the cities are covered are covered, the fields are covered, everything is wiped out. All of life, except for Noah and his wife and his immediate family, all of life except for the animals that happen to be brought to him, are killed in this cataclysmic flood. Which incidentally, by the way, just never made sense to me. Why when, when people have a newborn, they decorate their like, infant's room with Noah's Ark and the flood. It's like, let's commemorate your life by billions and billions of things dying, y- y- you know? <laughs> Welcome to the flood. And it says they're in that boat for like 150 days. It stops raining after 40, but you know, flood water just doesn't disappear overnight. And it starts to subside, and they wait. And it starts to subside, and they wait. And it recedes, and and Noah starts sending out birds. He's sending out ravens and doves, hoping that maybe they'll come back with like some sign of life, a bug, a branch. Maybe they won't come back at all, but, but they do. And so he waits, and he sends them out again. And the flood waters start to recede, and before you know it, it says dry ground appears. And after months and months and months of waiting in that boat, can you imagine what it smelled like in there? The door finally opens and Noah walks out and there's dry ground again. Now the story concludes at chapter 9. And it says in verse 8, if you follow with me, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. Here it is. I now establish my covenant with you. And what the rest of this passage does is it goes like on a a covenant Tourette syndrome frenzy. Covenant, covenant, covenant. I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he goes on, it says, God said, and this is the sign, the signature, if you will, of the covenant, the contract, I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my, guess what, covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it. And I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So what we have is, if you're watching this, is we have the story of Noah's flood. It goes from Genesis 6 through 9. And at the beginning of the story, it begins with this talk of this thing called covenant. And as the story plays out, it then concludes again with this, 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 this over-repetition of this thing called covenant again. So what we have is we have this story and it is framed by covenant. It's bookended. And what it's meant to do is give us as a reader the idea that everything we're to understand in Noah's flood is supposed to be understood in relation to this thing called covenant. Are you with me? And so it begins, and we see that God will make a covenant, but we don't yet know what it is. And so as we read the story, but there's a covenant here, what is it? And as it concludes, it informs it and frames it at the back end. And what I'd like to do with you is is frame for you how covenant frames this story. Now, 10 bucks says you've been there. I certainly have. And even if you've never been there personally, 20 says you know a lot of people that have. Have you ever asked the question
1: or wondered Why doesn't God do anything about the evil in this world?
0: Why does God allow suffering? Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem like God is absent at times,
1: uninvolved, or worse, unconcerned? Hey, that question right there is what this story is about.
0: Because what the flood narrative is about is how God actually, once upon a time, did proactively deal with this thing called evil. See, if you read a few verses before 618, you'll see that it talks a lot about how wickedness spread throughout the world. And do you know what it says? It says God was grieved. Do you know that there's things that God grieves and did you know that there are things that break God's heart? Because the story tells us the just rampant evil and suffering and wickedness of the world is one of them.
1: And it goes on, it says something more. Do you know what it says? It says, God repented. Isn't that wild?
0: Do you ever think of God as someone who repents? I mean, I'm a sinner, I need to repent, but what does God need to repent of? The story says in Genesis 6 that God repented and he repented of
1: this, making this creation because he saw what it became.
0: I try to climb into the mind of what it must like be for a parent whose child goes off to murder someone Or what it must be like for a parent whose whose child chooses paths in life that brings hurt and pain and destruction on other people and mass. And I've always wondered what is it like to be a parent in those situations, going, This is someone that I've loved, and look at what they've done, and wondering if there is a secret place in their heart that they just don't like to talk about. That goes, I wish they were never born. I'm sorry I ever brought him to be. See, guys, this is what the flood is about. It is God's answer to evil. People cry out, God, why don't you do anything about evil? And what Genesis 6 is about, God saying, I do. And this was his decision. What is the flood about? It is God's way of wiping the slate clean and starting again. It's his way of going, evil is in this world. Suffering is in this world. It is out of control. Forget this. I am wiping it out and starting over because this, the way it is, is not the way it's supposed to be. The flood is God's cosmic reset button. We've played video games before. You die three times, what do you do? You hit the button, you start again, right? This is what Noah's flood is is doing. It is God's cosmic reset button to do what? To go back to the way it was before he created and start again. Have you ever wondered this? Why a flood? Why not death by fire? Or a trillion angry mosquitoes? Why not any number of other ways to wipe out the earth? Why a flood? Well, what's fascinating is is if you trace this narrative of the flood, what it does is it intentionally parallels the creation story back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so as a reader, what starts to jump off the page is that God is going back to the beginning. Let me show you what I mean, all right? Now, If you were with us in the beginning of this, Genesis 1-1 starts, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 1-2, which is slightly less well-known, goes like this. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the what? The deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over what? What was there in the beginning before God created? Water. Water and a mass of just cosmic, amorphous water. Does that sound like the picture of what happened with the flood to you? I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth. What is God doing? He's going back before day one. And if you trace the Noah narrative, it starts jumping off the page. It goes on. Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, it says in Genesis 1 on day 3. Noah's in the middle of the flood, and what is he waiting for? Dry ground to appear. What does he do? He starts sending out doves to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. Will ground appear again? It goes on. On day 1, God creates day and night. On day 2, he creates sky and sea. And arguably along with that, climate and weather. On day three, dry ground. And more importantly, the vegetation that it sustains and produces. It's fascinating what God says to Noah when he gets off the ark. He says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Do you see how those are kind of paralleling it Day one, two, three, now day three, two, one. More on day five and six. Animals, what kind of animals? Did you notice as I was reading it how many times the every kind refrain appeared? Read the story. The, the animals come to Noah, and it repeatedly says and uses the same language in Genesis 1, this kind of animal, this kind of animal, this kind of animal, of every kind, of every kind, of every kind. There's more. In Genesis 2, we see that Adam serves as a priest. If you want more context on that, listen to the audio file online. What happens when Noah comes out of the ark? He builds an altar to the Lord, takes some clean animals, sacrifices some burnt offerings. Sound like a priest to you? It goes on. It says in Genesis 1 that God blessed Adam and Eve told him to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. It was his mandate for humanity. What does God tell Noah and his sons? Well, he blesses them. And he says to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's got to be coincidence. How about this one?
1: How does the creation narrative end? The man and his wife were naked. And
0: they felt no shame. Guys, do you actually know how the flood narrative ends? Noah plants a vineyard. He makes some wine. He gets drunk. And he lays around naked in his tent, feeling no shame. And I think it's significant that just like The serpent took advantage of Adam and Eve's nakedness. So Noah's son Ham took advantage of Noah's nakedness as well.
1: The flood is God's answer to evil. It is his way
0: of resetting that cosmic button, like a mechanic breaking down and rebuilding
1: something to make it new to start again from scratch. Here's the problem. Why was Noah picked? I mean, why
0: Noah? Only guy. Only guy on that ark. Him and his family. The text says it was because he was a righteous man. He was blameless. God saw all this wickedness in the earth and he chooses this righteous man. But you know what the problem is? Noah gets off the boat. You know what he does? He gets flat, drunk, wasted. And then his son comes along. You don't even ask me what his son does to him, all right? Just uh, see me afterwards. It's, It's like, you know, it's fascinating because you realize something. Even the most righteous people at some level are still wicked. Even the most righteous people still carry within them
1: at some level. Evil and sin. And it kind of causes God a bit of a problem.
0: Because it means that if he's going to deal with evil and wipe the slate clean, he's got to wipe it out, all of it. Question for you. Do you still want God to deal with evil in this world?
1: And if so, what would that implication be for you in the light of the story of the flood? And so what God does is something else instead. He makes a covenant.
0: And if you read closely, you'll see the covenant was actually not just with Noah. And it wasn't just with Noah and his sons. It was for Noah and his sons and all life on earth. But not just life on earth then, for all generations
1: to come. And the covenant was this. I won't do that again. I promise that I will not
0: do that ever again. Which is fascinating, you know why? Because it means this, God will not always do what he wants to do. It doesn't take long reading the biblical narrative to see so many times that God refrains from doing things that he wants to do. And sometimes that's really good news. Because sometimes God sees the wickedness and evil of this world and he's like, I've had it up to here. We've been their parents, right? And all hell literally is ready to break loose from his hand but he makes a covenant and he says, I will not do it. I'll lower myself. I'll bind myself. I'll fix myself with oaths that no matter what I want, I will not do that again. And for
1: someone who's wicked like me, I got to tell you, that's really good news.
0: See, this is what's central to to covenants and what the covenants
1: are about. It's God saying, I've made you a promise, and you can trust me. People in this day and age, we make promises all the time. We break them left and right. But God says, I've made you a promise, and you can trust me. I will not break it. It is a contract I am entering into
0: with you. Let me ask you, what kind of God would bother to make a contract with mere mortals and fallen
1: humanity? What's he need of us? Who's he accountable to? What kind of
0: God would lower himself to make promises to
1: beings that he created that are beneath him. The God of the Bible. That's who.
0: And he enters into this promise and he says, you can trust me.
1: And out of that we see that Noah, humanity,
0: life is saved. This is actually why Christians later on will start to use Noah and his flood is a salvation motif. I love what 1 Peter has to say. You can read this up here, but how through the flood and through the destruction and through the judgment, God is fundamentally a God who saves. And so I ask, what does this say? How does this inform us about suffering
1: and evil today? Well, It informs us this way, that God will let suffering and evil continue because he's promised tonight to wipe it out and start again. And so he's promised that it will continue. But see, God's a merciful God.
0: And mercy means at some point he will have to judge. Because if you're merciful, you don't let your kids get their teeth kicked in forever, right? And so at some point, God will judge. But what God says is, I don't want to. Because no matter how fallen and how debased this creation is, they're still my creation. And I still love them. And I want to show him mercy. And so God waits. And evil continues. And so God waits. And suffering continues. And God waits, wanting to judge nobody like he judged in a flood. Nobody like that again. Hoping all will come to repentance. Hoping all will turn from evilness. Hoping all will change their ways from their wickedness and call on the name of the Lord and seek his mercy and seek his Grace.
1: And so we wait with the promise of God. In the meantime, a covenant laid out in Noah's flood.
0: And this is just the beginning of what covenants are about in the Bible. And for the next few weeks, what we're going to look at is other covenants God has made as well. And how that too gives us a window into why God does what he does in this world and what he's about and what he's up to.
1: So guys, I'd like to invite you to um, rise with me, all right? And here's what I'd like to do. I'll tell you this. Noah's
0: the hero of the story. God's the hero of the story.
1: Noah's the one that's poured out. You know who I'd be in the story? Some dude wiped out in the flood. How about you? What wickedness exists in your life? What evil is there that is deserving of God's punishment? Guys, what should God wipe out? Whatever it is, I want to invite you now to take a few moments with me. To a God who makes covenants. To a God who's merciful and bring all of it in the open to him. Let's pray. God in heaven, you're a God who will
0: judge, and you'll judge because you're merciful, because you know what evil does in this world.
1: And God, we come here as people who feed it and fuel it.
0: Who suffer beneath it, but at the same time are responsible for propagating it. We come as people who justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to take our punishment upon himself, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us. Lead us, God, to delight in your ways and in your will and to walk according to your name. May we come today and turn from the evil that we do. May we turn from the sin that we've become. May we not curse your name when you wait to bring judgment on the evil of this world, but to come in gratitude that you're patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to have everlasting life. May we trust the words of your promise, the covenant that you made with us. The covenant you made that never again will you deal with evil by wiping it out in a flood. Of never starting over and junking that which is. May we trust in the new covenant and the blood of your son for the forgiveness of all of our sins. May it define us, God. May it transform us. This we pray. Amen.